Uh, for this morning, we're looking at Genesis uh, 49, and uh, which is printed for you in the bulletin. Uh, Genesis 49 is the uh, kind of the culmination of a uh, the story we've been looking at this fall, where uh, which is about the twelve sons of Jacob, and especially two of those sons, Judah and Joseph. And at the end of that story, uh, we come to a passage where Jacob gathers his uh, twelve sons around, and he prays a blessing on each of those 12 sons. And um, last week, we looked at the, f- the first three blessings to, uh, to uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and now we're looking at the fourth son, who is the prominent son in the family, Judah. And um, I'm just going to read uh, Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. So I think you have more verses than that printed in your bulletin, but I'm just going to read uh, verses 8 to 12. Uh, this is God's word to you. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From uh, the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Um, As we uh, talk about the the future of our church, and I imagine uh, even many here are are thinking uh, about uh, some of the things that I've just talked about, about the future of our church, would you help us now to just uh, take our hearts and reflect on the one who has brought us here, our Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world. And would you lead us um, into worship to uh, meditate on who he is and all that he's done for us and um, our future in him. And um, Lord, I thank you uh, for this church and I uh, thank you for the, uh, just the privilege of, of being a part of this family. And um, we ask that uh, Jesus would always be the center of this community. And uh, so guide us now to understand who he is and what he has done and what he will do. And so open your word to us now by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, as Daniel mentioned, we're in in the third uh, Sunday of Advent, which is, uh, Advent is a time of where we kind of learn the, uh, the, the discipline of hoping as Christians. Uh, that we're hoping, we're anticipating the coming of Jesus. So that actually in the the Old Testament, up to the uh, coming of the time of Jesus, those who are uh, uh, reading the book of Genesis, who it was first written to, they were anticipating uh, the coming of the Messiah, and they were looking forward to him. And now we're looking forward uh, to Jesus' second coming, where he'll come again and make all things right. And I just want to say that I think anticipation, hope, is an important thing for us to understand, especially um, in our culture. Because uh, for all of us, we live in a culture that has been trained for the last probably two or three hundred years to see the universe, to see the world that we're living in primarily as a machine. 
that you're living in a machine, you know, pretty much since Newton. That you look at the world, and the world is filled with uh, gravity and masses and forces, um, these, all these natural laws that are just grinding along, and uh, that, that these impersonal forces that are just grinding along, and the universe is just grinding along like a, cro- like a clock. And um, that there's no God who's directing history, uh, there's no spiritual realities behind the raw physics of the universe. Um, so the universe is just a dead and impersonal machine. That's how we've been trained to view the world that we're living in. Now the Bible, on the other hand, now the Bible acknowledges that the universe we're living in, God orders it, God is very orderly. You know, when you uh, drop a coin on the ground, it always falls at the same rate, nine point two meters per second squared, uh, gravity. And uh, at that acceleration, there's, there's a constancy to it. But the Bible is far more nuanced in its understanding of what uh, we are living in. And the Bible says you are not living in a machine. You are living in a story. You are living in a story, which means that the world is not mindlessly grinding on, but is headed somewhere. It is charged with purpose. And it's not an impersonal, random uh, chaos of uh, forces and masses mindlessly acting throughout the ages. But every object and event in this universe is deeply formed by personal intent. There is a person behind it. And uh, as G.K. Chesterton said, I had always felt life first as a story. And if there is a, sto- if there is a story, there is a storyteller. There's a person behind this world. And I'll tell you that the lens with which you see the universe, the world that you live in, and the trees and everything, and the stars and the sky and the birds and the animals and your own life, the lens that you use, is it a machine or is it a story, will radically shape how you live your life. And um, now, what the Old Testament is, we've been looking at a book of the Old Testament, Genesis, uh, uh, throughout since uh, September the Old Testament is basically a story looking for an ending. And it's, a, it's pretty much a story of this nation Israel that God chooses, this nation Israel. And it's a story that's looking for an ending. And throughout the book of Genesis, there is this rumor that keeps coming up throughout the, uh, throughout the Old Testament that the storyteller of the world that we're living in is actually one day going to visit the story that he's writing. And he is actually going to become a character in the story. And actually, he's going to become the, the hero in the story that he is writing and he's coming. And um, as the Old Testament goes on, there are all these predictions of this one who is going to come, the storyteller, who's going to visit us. And as the picture, uh, as those predictions go on through the Old Testament, the picture starts out very mysterious, kind of opaque. Uh, it's, it's fuzzy what he looks like, and as the story goes on, this, this uh, man that's going to come, it, the picture becomes clearer and clearer and clearer until, it fin- until he finally comes in Jesus. And Jesus is the storyteller who's visited his world. And what we're seeing in this passage, what, what all, pretty much all scholars, whether they're Christian or non-Christian scholars, reading this text say this is one of the most ancient of those predictions in the Old Testament where we get a hint of one who is going to come who is God's redeemer of the world, the true king of the world. And uh, he is going to come through the line of Judah, Jacob's son Judah. There's one who's going to come. And uh, this morning, I want to let this passage, that obscure passage, some of you when I read that, you said, what? 
Jesus is talking about. This is very odd. Um, it's actually, I think, deeply poetic, beautiful uh, image of who Jesus is. But I want to let this passage lead us in a meditation of who Jesus, the storyteller of the world, who became the hero of the story, is. And as we meditate on him, I want to answer this important question. What did he come to do? What did Jesus come to do? Who is he and what did he come to do? And of course, there's a million ways to answer that. Jesus did a million things. He's done a million things. He's going to do a million things in the world. He's done a million things in our life. But I want to highlight three things from this passage. That first, Jesus is the healing of the individual soul. But second, Jesus is also the healing of humanity as a whole. And third, that Jesus is the healing of the rest of creation. And so we're going to get a picture of what Jesus is doing. So he starts very individual. Jesus is the healing of the individual soul. Nate Walker's personal life. He actually cares about our individual lives. And yet he doesn't just stop there. He's actually the healing of humanity as a whole in profound ways. And he's already done this in profound ways. And third, he doesn't just stop there, though. He is actually the healing of the rest of creation as well. So these three things we're going to look at and get a sense of the size of who this man is that we're celebrating as we uh, approach Christmas. So first, Jesus is the healing of the individual soul. Now, um, you see this first there in verse 8, which I want to... I wanna, uh, doesn't say a lot, but I want to expand on. Verse 8 says, Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. So now Judah is, is become kind of the prominent brother of these 12 brothers. And these 12 brothers are all going to become tr- the 12 tribes of Israel. And it turns out Judah is going to be the leading tribe, the most powerful, the largest uh, tribe. And so on the one hand, this, when it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, it's simply saying that, you know, you're going you're to be the prominent leader, tribe, and brother in the family. But um, I don't think that it's simply talking about Judah and his tribe because this word praising is a word that is uh, in the Bible used primarily to talk about God. Praising is something that you don't do to a man. Praising is something that you do um, uh, to God. It's, it's a word that's used almost exclusively for God. And um, in fact, the next verse there talks about that Judah is a lion's cub. And uh, Daniel mentioned that earlier, that, that, that the New Testament writers uh, pick that up in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. It turns out that the Lion of Judah is who? Is Jesus. He's actually a man. He is God become a man in Jesus, is, uh, is uh, the Lion of Judah. And what this is telling, for telling, is that there's going to come one from the Lion of Judah who is going to be worthy of praise, worthy to be worshipped, to be adored. Now the question is, what does Jesus being worthy of praise have to do with the healing of my personal soul, your soul? What do those have to do with each other? Well, let me try to answer that. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book uh, in the 50s called uh, Reflections on the Psalms, which is probably one one of his worst books, actually. But anything Lewis writes has at least something good in it. Actually, it has one of his best chapters in it, though. And it's a chapter called A Word About Praising. And where Lewis says, you know, 
I, in reading the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, he had always struggled to say, why does God want to be praised so bad? Why is he always asking people to praise him and saying, and demanding that people come and give him honor? And he says, you know, any person that I meet that wants people to tell them how great they are all the time, usually it's probably pretty insecure. And uh, why do they need people? You know, they're, they're egocentric. And to imagine that the God of the universe needs us to come and tell us, tell him how great he is, how can that be? It seems so odd. And yet, um, if you turn to page three in your bulletin, I, I, I gave you a little quote from that chapter. It's more than a little quote, I guess. I got two large quotes uh, this morning. Um, and if, this is what he says. He, he makes a fascinating observation about praising. This is what he says. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, listen to this last line, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Praise is what it sounds like to be alive is when you are alive, when you have encountered something that is so filled with joy, is you are so amazed with, that you are alive with, the sound of it is you begin to praise. And um, praise is the sound of enjoyment and happiness. And what that means for us is that the most fundamental question of our souls, you know, so for many of us, we think of how our souls feel. They feel fragmented. They feel burdened. They feel weighed down. And the thing that our souls is looking, are looking for is something that is worth praising, something that is worth our worship. And the reason for that is because what it means to be human is that we were made to be worshipers. We were made to worship God. And um, if you don't worship God, you will always find something in your life to worship and to adore and to praise. And what happens to us, the reason that our souls are so fragmented is we find things that aren't God and begin to praise them and worship them and bow down to them and devote ourselves to them. So this could be your children. This could be your job. This could be uh, someone you're in love with. This could be nature and, and doing recreation. This could be money or cars or houses or clothes. It could be anything that we say, this is the one thing that is so good. If I had this, my life would be complete. I would be somebody if I had this. And we constantly pursue after these things, and it turns out that these things, we treat them like gods, even though they can't be gods to us. And whenever we do that, it fractures and, and, um, and dehumanizes us and tears apart our soul. And so what the, the healing of our soul means finding the one who can actually take our praise. And what happens is whenever we take something, a good thing that God brings into our life, whether it's children or a job or, or money or, um, or friendships or community, whatever it is, or, or nature and recreation, whatever we take a good thing and we make it into a God, actually we make it into a demon. It becomes a curse in our life. 
And it doesn't work properly because it wasn't meant to be a God. It was supposed to be a gift from God. It was supposed to be something our children are supposed to lead us into thanksgiving to God and say, thank you, God, for, for loving me. And money is supposed to lead us into worship and say, God, you gave, us, gave me this. You cared for me. You provided for me. Everything is supposed to lead us into worship to God. But when we worship other things, it destroys our soul. And, um, and what we see with Jesus is that the disciples... After they had lived with him for three years, they'd followed him, they heard him teach, um, they'd watched him do miracles, and they, come, they came to the conclusion, this is not just a man. This is God himself come to us. This is the storyteller, the deep reality behind the world. Come as a man and walk among us. And after he died on the cross for all their sins and he was risen from the dead, what did they do? They didn't say, wow, this guy's a great teacher. He's got a lot of wisdom that we can learn for. That's not what they did. They fell on the ground, and they worshipped him. They bowed down, and they worshipped him. And he, they said, this at last is someone that is worthy of our devotion and praise. This is someone that's worthy to be the center of my life. And they found out when they worshipped him, he didn't turn into a demon, because he was the one that he, that he was the giver of all good gifts. And uh, when he had given those things, and they worshipped him, he didn't turn into a demon. He began to give them life, and their li- they came alive with joy. And so Jesus is the healing of our, uh, of our souls because he is worthy to be praised. And let me just say, why, why did they fall down and worship him? Why did the disciples, after they spent three years with him, they didn't fall down and worship him those three years. But after his resurrection, they, fe- they fell down and said, you truly are God. Why did they do that? These are the disciples who, when Jesus was going to die on the cross, uh, abandoned Jesus. They left him all alone. And I imagine that when they came back and they found out, oh, he died on the cross, but he rose again from the dead, and they couldn't keep him down. And Jesus didn't say to them, what did I tell you? You cowards. You left me alone. He didn't just throw on them the burden of all their sins. He forgave them. And he said, look, I did it for you. I welcomed you back. And that's what Jesus does to us as we come and we see that we've failed him over and over and over again in our life and we go to him and, what is it? and we think he's going to just burden us by saying, you coward, you fool, you've messed up your life and he doesn't. And he says, listen, I went to the cross and I died for you and I've conquered the burden of your sin. Come and be my friend. Come and live with me. Come and be a part of my kingdom. And when we've experienced that, when they had experienced that grace, that love, they fell down, and the only response is they could praise him and worship him and say, I've never encountered love like this in anywhere in the world. And they worshiped him. And so, um, first, Jesus is the healing of our soul because he is the one that finally we can worship and praise and devote our lives to, and he gives life to us and makes our souls whole. But this is the thing, is that Jesus answers this first question of the, you know, the longing of our soul, that all of us have these longings, say, what is my life about? What, um, who am I? am I? Am I worth anything? And uh, it, there's this aching inside of us, and he speaks to that. And for most of us, when we think of, you know, what is spirituality about? What is religion about? We think that this is what it's about. It's about the aching in our soul, our unsatisfied souls, and coming into a personal encounter with God, and it absolutely is that. But what we see in this passage is that it's actually far more. Jesus is far more than that. He's far more than um, my personal spirituality. And this leads to the second point. It's not just that Jesus is the healing of the individual soul, but second, Jesus 
is the healing of humanity as a whole. And, uh, you know, the main focus of these uh, verses is that through Judah, the tribe of Judah, there's going to become a kingdom. And there's going to be uh, these kings, this line of kings that's going to come from Judah. The lion is a picture of a king. And you see there in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from, from uh, between his feet. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So what, what's being predicted here is that Jacob is saying through Judah there's going to come this line of kings. And this was actually filled in the Davidic dynasty. So in, in around uh, 1000 BC, David became the king of Israel. And he actually he became a king of, of a vast uh, nation and uh, uh, you know, conquered many peoples and uh, had much wealth, vast army. And actually, the Davidic dynasty went for, uh, for about 400 years, from 1000 BC to about six, uh, 600 BC, which is an amazing long time in this tumultuous ancient Near East. God preserved this line of kings for 400 years, many wars, many battling peoples, and he preserved them. But, what, but you'll notice in this passage that the focus of this prophecy, this prayer over the tribe of Judah, is not just on the line of kings, but it's at the end of the line of kings. The, from this line of kings, it, it, look at what it says again in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. So there's going to be this line of kings. We're going to have the scepter. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And what this is saying is that there's going to be this line of kings that's going to be through uh, the son of David, that at the end of that line there's going to come one who is going to draw all the nations of the world to himself and bind them together in peace. And they're all going to be devoted to him and there's going to be this solidarity and this unity throughout the world. Which um, is an amazing uh, an amazing statement about our world. And uh, it's a very different kind of question, right, than how do I, you know, how does Nate deal with the, the, um, the, the fracturing of his soul and, and feeling unsettled and unsatisfied about life? And now all of a sudden we're talking about the nations of the world. And this is a very big question that our world faces right now. There's, there's a warring ethnic groups that hate each other, that are fighting each other, that are killing each other. And uh, our nation faces that in other parts of the world. And, um, and there's mu so much disunity. And this is saying there's coming one who's going to draw together all the nations around him. An incredible statement. And, um, and that's a big question for us. How is there going to be peace throughout the world? You know, we, our culture has many answers to that. You know, it could be democracy, that if we could bring democracy to all the nations of the world, there would be peace. We're finding again and again that that doesn't work. Uh, if we could bring education to other parts of the world, education, democracy are good things, but can they save the world? Can they bring the nations of the world together? No, they can't. Facebook, you know, if we get 100 million people on Facebook, maybe we'll tie the world together. And we say, you know, these are kind of superficial relationships happening. Uh, I don't know if this is going to tie the world together. What is going to tie the world together? And, um, well, I'll tell you this. When you become a Christian and you say, you know, I believe Jesus is God, become a man. He is the deep reality behind the world, and I want to be devoted to him. I want to follow him. And you repent of your sins, and I say, I want to be forgiven, and I, I, I want to be baptized and come into his family. Immediately, do you know what happens? You find solidarity with around 2 billion people in the world. There are about 2 billion Christians in the world right now. Immediately, 
you have a commonality. You are brothers and sisters with two billion people from every nation, from Ghana to Korea to the Philippines to uh, the United Kingdom to um, Peru, in all places. And, and this very day, on Sunday, there are people in all those nations that are, you know, you look at this church and you say, you know, you, you know, there's a, some people in here. This is not a lot of people. You say, I'm kind of impressed with what Jesus is doing. Listen, if, if from heaven, when we come into worship on Sundays, we come into the presence of Christ, into heaven. And from the view from heaven, there is a, this incredibly multiracial crowd of two billion voices with one voice saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. And they're receiving this announcement. The two billion people are receiving an announcement that your sins are all forgiven. You are forgiven and welcome into the kingdom of God. And now go and love your neighbor. Love your enemies. And uh, uh, give yourself away to your neighbor and love one another. That is happening right now. And uh, Jesus' kingdom that he's already built so far, which is continuing to be built, dwarfs the Roman Empire, dwarfs the United States of America, dwarfs China, and it's far more multiracial. It's in every nation. And that's what we're a part of. Is that when I find out, oh my goodness, Jesus loved Nate Walker. He loved me and he brings healing to my soul. And then immediately I'm also a part of this global movement where he is, I have solidarity with people from every nation in the world. There is no leader, there is no nation, there is no ideology that has ever accomplished anything remotely close to what Jesus has done to this very day in history. Not even close. This is, this is what is being predicted in these little ancient verses. The obedience of the peoples will come to him. The peoples will bring tribute to him. The nations will come to him. And um, this is a bigger... And, and listen, when we talk about spirituality in Bellingham, you know, we imagine... We talk about... I'm going to, you know, doing yoga and finding inner peace... And, I, you know, finding inner peace, Jesus does that. He brings peace to our lives. But look at how much, look at, yoga does not bring the nations of the world together. Look at how much more Jesus is doing. He's doing something totally different than any other religion or other, any other spirituality has ever done. But, um, and I wish, you know, I could unpack for you, I, I spend two hours unpacking for how Jesus is the healing of humanity. But, um, you know, I could talk about how the gospel goes into societies, how the gospel has invented, it's Christians responding to the gospel have invented hospitals, research universities, who've abolished slavery, who've invented human rights. They've really, in, Christians invented human rights. Luke Ferry, who's a, uh, an atheist philosopher from France, a very well-known philosopher, he says, still to this day, unless a society has encountered Christianity, it doesn't understand human rights. A society has to meet Jesus before they even understand that humans have value. That's, that's what has happened in history. That's true today. And uh, free markets, freedom, widespread literacy, all of these things have been the fruit of the gospel of Jesus slowly and gradually, his kingdom working its way into every nation. And guess what? He did it without a single gun. There's not guns. We get together, we read the book, we sing and he changes the world. That's incredible leadership. He doesn't have to take power and impose it on anyone. He invites the lost, he invites the broken to come, become and be a part of his kingdom. And uh, Rodney Stark, Rodney Stark is a, 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 um, was at uh, University of Washington for about 30 years, was a um, historian 
of religion. He's written a book called uh, The Rise of Christianity, where, where he asks the question, how was it that the followers of Jesus... I mean, Jesus did not gather an army to himself. He basically spent three years investing in 12 guys that he walked around with. And then he um, radically transformed the Roman Empire over the next, uh, the next few centuries. And Rodney Stark said, what happened? How did that happen? How did Jesus do that? And in one of the chapters, he describes what um, the presence of the gospel in the Roman cities was like. And I, I put a quote for you. So I, know this, I know these are both kind of longer quotes, but they're so good that I want to read them to you. This is what Stark says. Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. It revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable, more tolerable. This is the kingdom of God when it comes into a society. And when it comes in, so it doesn't just transform our individual personal lives. It does that profoundly, and yet it, it has um, a far more expansive effect. And this is what uh, Christ has done in cultures throughout the world for the last 2,000 years, and he's still doing now, and we're a part of he is the hope of the nations, the healing of humanity. But it turns out that it doesn't stop there. <laughs> if that was impressive enough, uh, that uh, Jesus can heal our souls and heal humanity, it goes beyond that, that Jesus is also the healing of the rest of creation. I'm just going to, I'll try to spend a few minutes just talking about this. Um, let me just give some context for the importance of this. Um, for the last hundred years or so, it's been very common in American Christianity to describe the Christian message as something essentially like this. God is coming to destroy the world. And uh, because he, he is angry and he's going to judge the world. But Jesus, is, you know, it's kind of like the, the world is the Titanic and it's going down. The, sh the ship is going down. And, uh, but if you believe in Jesus, he's like this lifeboat. And if you get on the lifeboat, you'll be rescued from the world that is being trashed, that is being burned up. And that's kind of the message. You say, okay, you better believe on Jesus because he's kind of my, he's my, my lifeboat. But this passage, and I think actually the rest of the Bible, gives a very different picture of where the world is going. In not that negative picture that God is against the world, that he wants to trash the world that he's made, but actually that he wants to redeem it. And look at these, these verses. They're so odd, but, uh, but so beautiful. Look at verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes his eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. I'll just let you figure out what, that, what that's about. 
I mean, it's mysterious. That's what I love about this. I'm just like, what is this talking about? The donkey and the vine. And, uh, and uh, this is such a strange verse, but I'll tell you what this, the picture is here. Is that this pictures of these wine uh, vineyards where uh, basically people are taking their donkeys and tying them up to the, the wine vineyards, and the donkey's just eating all the grapes off the wine vineyard. And it, what it is is it's a picture, and, and then people have so much wine that they actually can wash their clothes in wine. I'm not sure I really understand that. If your clothes would get clean, if you wash them in wine, it seems like it would stain them. But the, the, the image is that um, wine is as abundant as, as water. And what the picture is, is, is a very earthy picture of the world uh, in abundance and God's blessing flowing everywhere. And uh, what this is, is it's a very early announcement of what is called the new creation. That God is not going to scrap this world, but he's going to renew it. He's going to bring it into its uh, potential of what it was made for. And because um, for many of us, when we look at the world and we look at the creation that God's made, this earth that we live in, and we look at people, we have these two feelings about it. On the one hand, we look at it and we say, this world is so harsh. It's so violent. It's so unfair. There's so much loss. Nothing ever seems to turn out right in this world. And it just seems like inevitable despair to live in this world. And yet, speaking about the very same world, we can look at it and we look out and we say, this world is so incredibly beautiful. It is a potential paradise. I mean, I could potentially just love living here and just having a body and tasting things and knowing people and doing creative things and building things with God's world. How is it that we can have these opposite views of this same world? And it's because this world is charged with potential. It is going somewhere. That God wants to make it into a house where he lives with us. And he's going to redeem it. And Jesus is not scrapping this world. It's not a sinking ship. He is redeeming it. And he's going to come back and he's going to make all things right in this world. And this is how Romans 8 describes it. I consider, uh, Paul says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now listen to this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And what Paul seems to think is that what happens in our life when we come to know Christ and we find freedom and joy and we become who God made us to be when we meet Christ, that same thing is actually going to happen to the earth itself in some strange way. And even though we can't imagine what that is, we look at the world and we say, the world seems stuck. It seems like it has so much potential. Jesus is going to lead us into that. That is where this project is going. That is where his kingdom is going. And so... Um, and the picture that the Bible uses is always this abundance of wine, this abundance of feasting. You know, wine is this picture of life together, of God's blessing, of, of, of the earth being fruitful, and people coming together and celebrating and singing and feasting and having joy. This is where we're going. And when Jesus came, what was his first miracle? He went to a wedding, and they ran out of wine. And he says, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm the line of the tribe of Judah where there's this abundance of wine, and he took, these, uh, he, he made 100, he took 150 gallons of water and made them into 150 gallons of wine and just blessed this wedding party. 
And he said, I'm, I'm here to bring life and joy and celebration. And uh, this is what Advent is about. Is we're in Advent, we're looking forward that, that our lives in this world is going to a time where Jesus will come again and he will make all things new in the world. And right now we're praying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our pray. prayer. Is what, this vision of what Jesus is doing is we want it in this community, we want it in Bellingham, we want it in the world. And so this is what I want to say in closing, is that we look at, this, at the size of this gigantic and fascinating figure of Jesus Christ who can deal with my personal soul, who can deal with the ethnic differences of, of uh, the world as a whole, and who has such a vision for where uh, the creation itself is going. Um, as we look at these facts about who Christ was, his piercing wisdom, we are pressed, and, and we think that we're, we're, we're pressed more and more with the question, will I accept him? Will I accept Jesus? But as the size and uniqueness of Jesus Christ uh, grow and they become more clear to us, and as we realize that we are asking the wrong question, the question for us is not so much, will I accept Jesus Christ, the true king of the world, who's drawing all the nations to himself. How odd. The question is, that will I accept him? The far more urgent question is, will he accept me? Can I have a place in that kingdom, in that renewal, in that new life? Can I come and praise him? Will he hear my lips? The healing of the individual soul and the, the restoration of humanity and the creation, can I have a share in that? And the answer is yes. There's an open offer to all people everywhere. Come and have all your sins forgiven and have a place in the kingdom of God and share in his life. Share in the life of the man who made the world and the man who will remake the world. And it is with uh, that hope and that longing that we uh, celebrate Christmas and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for such... Uh, amazing, mysterious truths hidden in your word. We thank you for this promise buried in Genesis 49 of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We look to him in faith that he would receive us. Uh, Lord, um, give us an awe and a wonder of who you are that we might praise you with joy in our hearts. Transform us and make us agents of your kingdom, we ask in Christ's name.